Chapter 15, Part 2 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. Translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 15, Part 2 The Eschatological Question. Weifenbach's view, as we have seen, empties Jesus's expectation of his return of almost all its content, and to that is due the fact that his investigation did not prove so useful as it might have done. His purpose is, following suggestions thrown out by Schleiermacher and Weisse, to prove the identity of the predictions of the second coming and of the resurrection, and he takes as his starting point the observation that the conduct of the disciples after the death of Jesus forbids us to suppose that the resurrection had been predicted in clear and unambiguous sayings, and that, on the other hand, the announcement of the second coming coincides in point of time with the predictions of the resurrection, and the predictions both of the second coming and of the resurrection stand in organic connection with the announcement of his approaching death. The two are therefore identical. It was only after the death of their master that the disciples differentiated the thought of the resurrection from that of the second coming. The resurrection did not bring them that which the second coming had promised, but it produced the result that the eschatological hopes, which Jesus had with difficulty succeeded in damping, flamed up again in the hearts of his disciples. The spiritual presence of the Deliverer who had manifest himself to them did not seem to them to be the fulfillment of the promise of the second coming but the expectation of the latter being brought into contact with the flame of eschatological hope with which their hearts were afire was fused and cast into a form quite different from that in which it had been derived from the words of jesus that was all finely observed for the first time it had dawned upon historical criticism that the great question is that concerning the identity or difference of the parousia and the resurrection but the man who had been the first to grasp that thought, and who had undertaken his whole study with the special purpose of working it out, was too much under the influence of the spiritualized eschatology of Schleiermacher and Weisse to be able to assign the right values in the solution of his equation. And withal, he is too much inclined to play the apologist as a subsidiary role. He is not content merely to render the history intelligible, he is, by his own confession, urged on by the hope that perhaps a way may be found of causing that error of Jesus to disappear and proving it to be an illusion due to the want of a sufficiently close study of his discourses. But the historian simply must not be an apologist. He must leave that to those who come after him, and he may do so with a quiet mind, for the apologists, as we learn from the history of the lives of Jesus, can get the better of any historical result whatever. It is, therefore, quite unnecessary that the historian should allow himself to be led astray by following an apologetic will-o'-the-wisp. Technically regarded, the mistake on which Weifenbach's investigation made shipwreck was the failure to bring the Jewish apocalyptic material into the relation of the synoptic data. If he had done this, 
it would have been impossible for him to extract an absolutely unreal and unhistorical conception of the second coming out of the discourses of Jesus. The task which Weifenbach had neglected remained undone, to the detriment of theology, until Baltensperger repaired the omission. His book, The Self-Consciousness of Jesus in the Light of the Messianic Hopes of His Time, published in 1888, made its impression by reason of the fullness of its material, whereas Kolani and Volkmar had still been able to deny the existence of a fully formed messianic expectation in the time of Jesus, the genesis of the expectation was now fully traced out, and it was shown that the world of thought which meets us in Daniel had won the victory, that the Son of Man, Messiah, of the similitudes of Enoch, was the last product of the messianic hope prior to the time of Jesus, and that, therefore, the fully developed Danielic scheme, with its unbridgeable chasm between the present and the future world, furnished the outline within which all further and more detailed traits were inserted. The honor of having effectively pioneered the way for this discovery belongs to Schurer. Baltensperger adopts his ideas, but sets them forth in a much more direct way, because he, in contrast to Schurer, gives no system of messianic expectation, and there never in reality was a system, but is content to picture its many-sided growth. He does not, it is true, escape from minor inconsistencies. For example, the idea of a political messiahship, which is really set aside by his historical treatment, crops up here and there, as though the author had not entirely got rid of it himself. But the impression made by the book as a whole was overpowering. Nevertheless, this book does not exactly fulfill the promise of its title any more than Weifenbach's. The reader expects that now at last Jesus' sayings about himself will be consistently explained in the light of the Jewish messianic ideas, but that is not done. For Baltensperger, instead of tracing down and working out the conception of the kingdom of God held by Jesus as a product of the Jewish eschatology, at least by way of trying whether that method would suffice, takes it over direct from modern historical theology. He assumes as self-evident that Jesus' conception of the kingdom of God had a double character, that the eschatological and spiritual elements were equally represented in it and mutually conditioned one another, and that Jesus therefore began, in pursuance of this conception, to found a spiritual invisible kingdom, although he expected its fulfillment to be effected by supernatural means. Consequently, there must have been a duality in his religious consciousness, in which these two conceptions had to be combined. Jesus's messianic consciousness sprang, according to Baltensperger, from a religious root. That is to say, the messianic consciousness was a special modification of a self-consciousness, in which a pure, spiritual, unique relation to God was the fundamental element and from this arises the possibility of a spiritual transformation of the Jewish messianic self-consciousness. In making these assumptions, Baltensperger does not ask himself whether it is not possible that for Jesus the purely Jewish consciousness of a transcendental messiahship may itself have been religious, nay, even spiritual, just as well as the messiahship resting on a vague, indefinite, colorless sense of union with God 
which modern theologians arbitrarily attribute to him. Again, instead of arriving at the two conceptions, kingdom of God and messianic consciousness, purely empirically by an unbiased comparison of the synoptic passages with the late Jewish conceptions, Baldensperger, in this following Holtzmann, brings them into his theory in the dual form in which contemporary theology, now becoming faintly tinged with eschatology, offered them to him. Consequently, everything has to be adapted to this duality. Jesus, for example, in applying to himself the title Son of Man, thinks not only of the transcendental significance which it has in the Jewish apocalyptic, but gives it at the same time an ethico-religious coloring. Finally, the duality is explained by an application of the genetic method, in which the, quote, course of the development of the self-consciousness of Jesus, close quote, is traced out. The historical psychology of the Markan hypothesis here shows its power of adapting itself to eschatology. From the first, to follow the course of Baltensperger's exposition, the eschatological view influenced Jesus's expectation of the kingdom and his messianic consciousness. In the wilderness, after the dawn of his messianic consciousness at his baptism, he had rejected the ideal of the messianic king of David's line and put away all warlike thoughts. Then he began to found the kingdom of God by preaching. For a time, the spiritualized idea of the kingdom was dominant in his mind, the messianic eschatological idea falling rather into the background. But his silence regarding his messianic office was partly due to pedagogic reasons. Quote, Since he desired to lead his hearers to a more spiritual conception of the kingdom, and so to obviate a possible political movement on their part and a consequent intervention of the Roman government. Close quote. In addition to this, he had also personal reasons for not revealing himself, which only disappeared in the moment when his death and second coming became part of his plan. Previous to that, he did not know how and when the kingdom was to come. Prior to the confession at Caesarea Philippi, the disciples, quote, had only a faint and vague suspicion of the messianic dignity of their master, close quote. This was, quote, rather the preparatory stage of his messianic work. Objectively, it may be described as the period of growing emphasis upon the spiritual characteristics of the kingdom and of resigned waiting and watching for its outward manifestation in glory. Subjectively, from the point of view of the self-consciousness of Jesus, it may be characterized as the period of the struggle between his religious conviction of his messiahship and the traditional rationalistic messianic belief. This first period opens out into a second in which he had attained to perfect clearness of vision and complete inner harmony. By the acceptance of the idea of suffering, Jesus' inner peace is enhanced to the highest degree conceivable. Quote, By throwing himself upon the thought of death, he escaped the lingering uncertainty as to when and how God would fulfill his promise. The coming of the kingdom was fixed down to the second coming of the Messiah. Now he ventured to regard himself as the Son of Man, who was to be the future judge of the world for the suffering and dying Son of Man was closely associated with a Son of Man surrounded by the host of heaven. Would the people accept him as Messiah? He, now in Jerusalem, 
put the question to them in all its sharpness and burning actuality, and the people were moved to enthusiasm. But so soon as they saw that he whom they had hailed with such acclamation was neither able nor willing to fulfill their ambitious dreams, a reaction set in. Thus, according to Baltensperger, there was an interaction between the historical and the psychological events. And that is right, if only the machinery were not so complicated, and a development had not to be ground out of it at whatever cost. But this, and the whole manner of treatment in the second part, encumbered as it is with parenthetic qualifications, was rendered inevitable by the adoption of the two aforesaid not purely historical conceptions. Sometimes, too, one gets the impression that the author felt that he owed it to the school to which he belonged to advance no assertion without adding the limitations which scientifically secure it against attack. Thus, on every page he digs himself into an entrenched position, with palisades of footnotes. In fact, the book actually ends with a footnote. But the conception which underlay the whole was so full of vigor that, in spite of the thoughts not being always completely worked out, it produced a powerful impression. Baldensperger had persuaded theology at least to admit the hypothesis, whether it took up a positive or negative position in regard to it, that Jesus possessed a fully developed eschatology. He thus provided a new basis for discussion, and gave an impulse to the study of the subject such as it had not received since the sixties, at least not in the same degree of energy. Perhaps the very limitations of the work, due as they were to its introduction of modern ideas, rendered it better adapted to the spirit of the age, and consequently more influential than if it had been characterized by that rigorous maintenance of a single point of view, which was abstractly requisite for the proper treatment of the subject. It was precisely the rejection of this rigorous consistency which enabled it to gain ground for the cause of eschatology. But the consistent treatment from a single point of view was bound to come, and it came four years later. In passing from Weifenbach and Baltensperger to Johannes Weiss, the reader feels like an explorer who, after weary wanderings through billowy seas of reed grass, at length reaches a wooded tract and instead of swamp, feels firm ground beneath his feet. Instead of yielding rushes, sees around him the steadfast trees. At last there is an end of qualifying clause theology, and the, and yet, the, on the other hand, the, notwithstanding. The reader had to follow the others step by step, making his way over every footbridge and gangplank which they laid down, following all the meanderings in which they indulged, and must never let go their hands if he wished to come safely through the labyrinth of spiritual and eschatological ideas which they supposed to be found in the thought of Jesus. In vice there are none of these devious paths. Quote, Behold, the land lies before thee. His Preaching of Jesus Concerning the Kingdom of God published in 1892, has, on its own lines, an equal importance to that of Strauss's first life of Jesus. He lays down the third great alternative which the study of the life of Jesus had to meet. The first was laid down by Strauss. 
either purely historical or purely supernatural. The second had been worked out by the Tübingen School and Holtzmann, either synoptic or Johannine. Now came the third, either eschatological or non-eschatological. Progress always consists in taking one or other of two alternatives, in abandoning the attempt to combining them. The pioneers of progress have therefore always to reckon with the law of mental inertia which manifests itself in the majority, who always go on believing that it is possible to combine that which can no longer be combined, and in fact claim it as a special merit that they, in contrast with the one-sided writers, can do justice to the other side of the question. One must just let them be till their time is over, and resign oneself not to see the end of it, since it is found by experience that the complete victory of one of two historical alternatives is a matter of two full theological generations. This remark is made in order to explain why the work of Johannes Weiss did not immediately make an end of the mediating views. Another reason, perhaps, was that, according to the usual canons of theological authorship, the book was much too short, only seventy-six pages, and too simple to allow its full significance to be realized. And yet, it is precisely this simplicity which makes it one of the most important works in historical theology. It seems to break a spell. It closes one epoch and begins another. Weifenbach had failed to solve the problem of the second coming. Baldensperger, that of the messianic consciousness of Jesus, because both of them allowed a false conception of the kingdom of God to keep its place among the data. The general conception of the kingdom was first rightly grasped by Johannes Weiss. All modern ideas, he insists, even in their subtlest forms, must be eliminated from it. When this is done, we arrive at a kingdom of God which is wholly future, as is indeed implied by the petition in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Being still to come, it is at present purely supramundane. It is present only as a cloud may be said to be present, which throws its shadow upon the earth. Its nearness, that is to say, is recognized by the paralysis of the kingdom of Satan. In the fact that Jesus casts out the demons, the Pharisees are bidden to recognize, according to Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 through 28, that the kingdom of God is already come upon them. This is the only sense in which Jesus thinks of the kingdom as present. He does not establish it. He only proclaims its coming. He exercises no messianic functions, but waits, like others, for God to bring about the coming of the kingdom by supernatural means. He does not even know the day and hour when this shall come to pass. The missionary journey of the disciples was not designed for the extension of the kingdom of God, but only as a means of rapidly and widely making known its nearness. But it was not so near as Jesus thought. The impenitence and hardness of heart of a great part of the people, and the implacable enmity of his opponents, at length convinced him that the establishment of the kingdom of God could not yet take place, that such penitence as had been shown hitherto was not sufficient, and that a mighty obstacle, the guilt of the people, must first be put away. It becomes clear to him that his own death must be the ransom price. 
he dies not for the community of his followers only but for the nation that is why he always speaks of his atoning death as for many not for you after his death he would come again in all the splendor and glory with which since the days of daniel men's imaginations had surrounded the messiah and he was to come moreover within the lifetime of the generation to which he had proclaimed the nearness of the kingdom of god the setting up of the kingdom was to be preceded by the day of judgment in describing the messianic glory jesus makes use of the traditional picture but he does so with modesty restraint and sobriety therein consists his greatness with political expectations this kingdom has nothing whatever to do Quote, to hope for the kingdom of god in the transcendental sense which jesus attaches to it and to raise a revolution are two things as different as fire and water the transcendental character of the expectation consists precisely in this that the state and all earthly institutions conditions and benefits as belonging to the present age shall either not exist at all in the coming kingdom or shall exist only in a sublimated form hence jesus cannot preach to men a special ethic of the kingdom of god but only an ethic which in this world makes men free from the world and prepared to enter unimpeded into the kingdom that is why his ethic is of so completely negative a character it is in fact not so much an ethic as a penitential discipline the ministry of jesus is therefore not in principle different from that of john the baptist there can be no question of a founding and development of the kingdom within the hearts of men what distinguishes the work of jesus from that of the baptist is only his consciousness of being the messiah he awoke to this consciousness at his baptism but the messiahship which he claims is not a present office its exercise belongs to the future on earth he is only a man a prophet as in the view implied in the speeches in the acts of the apostles son of man is therefore in the passages where it is authentic a purely eschatological designation of the messiah though we cannot tell whether his hearers understood him as speaking of himself in his future rank and dignity or whether they thought of the son of man as a being quite distinct from himself whose coming he was only proclaiming in advance Quote, the sole object of this argument is to prove that the messianic self-consciousness of jesus as expressed in the title son of man shares in the transcendental apocalyptic character of jesus's idea of the kingdom of god and cannot be separated from that idea the only partially correct evaluation of the factors in the problem of the life of jesus which baldensperger had taken over from contemporary theology and which had hitherto prevented historical science from obtaining a solution of that problem had now been corrected from the history itself and it was now only necessary to insert the corrected data into the calculation here is the point at which it is fitting to recall Rymarus. he was the first and indeed before johannes weiss the only writer who recognized and pointed out that the preaching of jesus was purely eschatological it is true that his conception of the eschatology was primitive 
and that he applied it not as a constructive, but as a destructive principle of criticism. But read his statement of the problem, with the signs changed, and with the necessary deduction for the primitive character of the eschatology, and you have the view of vice. Gilani, too, has a claim to be remembered. When Vice asserts that the part played by Jesus was not the active role of establishing the kingdom, but the passive role of waiting for the coming of the kingdom, and that it was, in a sense, only by the acceptance of his sufferings that he emerged from that passivity, he is only asserting what Gilani had maintained thirty years before, with the same arguments and with the same decisiveness but vice places the assertion on a scientifically unassailable basis. End of chapter 15